Well, welcome everyone to the London School of Economics. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSE. And I, I want to welcome you all to this year's series of public lectures on the theme of movement, protest and social change. Um, if you have a look at the flyer that we've handed out, you'll see that we've got a, a, an amazing list of speakers both this term and if you look at the small print down the bottom next term, and if you look at it, I think you'll see that we've tried to uh, strike a balance between having some uh, eminent scholars and some prominent activists and leaders. And I think it's hard to imagine anyone who's in a better position to start our series of lectures than Dr Kumi Naidu. Um, I've had the great pleasure of knowing Kumi. We, we worked it out for 25 years, um, which is almost time for a sort of wedding celebration. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's had a really remarkable, I don't know if career is the right word, but sort of life of activism. Um, and he's got a lot more life of activism left in him yet. Beginning, as some of you know, uh, with his activities as a youth and community leader in apartheid South Africa, activities that uh, ultimately forced him to come to England, um, a time which I might say he used to great effect by gaining a doctorate in the most excellent subject of political sociology, um, through to his various roles over the years as a human rights activist, an activist in the campaign against global poverty, uh, a leader of the global climate change campaign and a number of other organisations and activities and through to his current role as the head of Greenpeace, surely one of the most recognisable, innovative and influential environmental organisations of our time. Now, I must say that when uh, we decided to invite Kumi and he graciously accepted, I became a little bit alarmed because no sooner had we done this than I turned on the television and there he was bobbing around in the icy waters of the Russian Arctic and I thought and he seemed to be trying to stop some drilling of an oil ship and I thought, oh my goodness, he's either going to be caught by an iceberg or thrown in jail by uh, President Putin and either way... We're going to have a hole in our program. But you can see that this has not taken place. Um, I was wrong. And I'm absolutely delighted, Kumi, to invite you, uh, to have you here today to speak. Uh, Kumi's topic tonight, as it says, is from hippie to hip, uh, descent in a globalised world. And he'll be talking for about 45 minutes or so. And then, of course, we'll be turning to questions. So I ask you to join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr Kumi Naidu. Thank you very, very much, Robin, for that really warm and generous uh, introduction. The question I want to start with is, when I met Robin, his preoccupation in life at that time was to answer this intellectual question. Why is there no Labour Party in the United States? Have you solved that? 25 years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to be, uh, tell you that I'm somewhat more nervous than I normally am in terms of addressing an audience because I really get invited to universities these days and so I'm really, really happy to be invited. And partly, uh, I find myself in a really difficult position in engaging with people around the world 
and I, perhaps the best way I can capture it for you is I was in the United States recently addressing a group of foundations that work on environmental justice and um, uh, I was sort of laying out the situation around the environment and an irate member of the audience put up a hand and said, Mr. Naidu, have you, do you know which was the most famous and powerful speech of Martin Luther King? And I sort of very tentatively said, I have a dream. And she said, yes, it was I have a dream. It was not I have a nightmare. <laughs> and when I hear you talk, you're talking about deep financial crisis, deep structural crisis, deep environmental crisis, and so on. And it sounds like you have a nightmare. So my challenge is, how can I engage with the issues at hand with the spirit of optimism, but also with the spirit of genuine realism about where the world is right now? So in preparation for this speech, I thought I should go back and reflect on Ralph Miliband and the impact that he had on me as a young student. And I want to kickstart with a little video uh, that helps me to make the connection. Ralph's place wasn't the barricade, but the dinner table. And it was always open house at the Miliband's radical right on North London that home. That's why we are sending the boys to Haverstock Comprehensive. The house was a kind of pitted circus of international traffic, of academics, of freedom fighters, of trade unionists, whatever, coming in and out of the house. Inheriting the old imperial colonialist mantle. But in Northern Ireland, no, 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 you're missing the point. Individual violent action is doomed. Unless it becomes part of a collective effort. Because, David... Because socialism is a worldwide struggle, not confined to any one country. Exactly. Ed, you could learn from your brother. Ow! He just gave me a Chinese burn. Ed, such a revisionist. Their father, Ralph, was a prominent left-wing thinker who had fled Europe to escape the Nazis. Understood the ideological threat that social revolution poses. Mum, Dad, I, I wanted to tell you something. Mm -hmm. Go on. Well, there's this party. Oh, Dave. Party? Um, I don't know. There might be drugs, sex. <laughs> Dad said sex. Mum, it's not that sort of party. Oh, oh, it's not a swingers party, is it? No, I, I've joined the Labour Party. Oh, David. The Labour Party? But why do you go to a swingers party? When I was 12 years old, I met a South African friend of my parents. Her name was Ruth First. The image I remember is of somebody vivacious, full of life, full of laughter. And then I remember a few months later, coming down to breakfast and seeing my mum in tears. Because Ruth First had been murdered by a letter bomb from the South African secret police, murdered for being part of the anti-apartheid movement. Now, I didn't understand the ins and outs of it, but I was shocked. I was... Well, the connection between Ruth First, who was somebody I was deeply influenced by, one of the 
leading activists in the anti-apartheid struggle, a white South African woman, and the connection that she had, and many activists in South Africa had, with Ralph Miliband and other uh, intellectuals and activists on the progressive left, was something that actually had quite a big impact on many of us as young activists growing up in apartheid South Africa. What I do miss a lot is the activist intellectual culture of the time that I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s was significantly more vibrant. Universities were significantly more places of progressive ideas and fomentation of different sort of uh, perspectives and so on. And sadly, the world that we live in today, as the World Bank and those that supported what was called the Washington Consensus, is a world where we are told that the situation we have now is TINA, T-I-N-A. Anybody knows what's TINA? There is no alternative to the dominant socioeconomic paradigm that we have, which is neoliberalism. Now, sorry, I just need to figure out how I use the technology here. <laughs> so while we're doing that, I should tell you the other recollection. When, as I was preparing for the uh, lecture, I was thinking about who were the other people that were influential in that period. And there was a guy called Antonio Gramsci who, how many of you, by the way, I just want to check out of interest, how many of you have heard of Gramsci? Okay, uh, much better than normal audiences that I asked the question to. But one of the things uh, we had was this very powerful idea that Gramsci gave the world of an organic intellectual. And he described an organic intellectual as somebody who was connected to the broader society and engaged in the issues of the broader society. In fact, at my university in apartheid South Africa, where in fact there were not as many intellectual, uh, organic intellectuals as we would have liked. Uh, I remember in the mid-80s getting arrested at a demonstration and as I was getting put into the police van, I saw somebody holding a sign at the university saying, too few organic intellectuals, too many orgasmic intellectuals. <laughs> so with all of those um, influ early influences, I want to dive into the world that we currently live in. The moment of world history that we find ourselves can be described as a perfect storm or a boiling point. What we have seen over the last couple of years has been a convergence of multiple crises in a very short, concentrated period of time. Some of you might remember that in 2008, we had the fuel price crisis that rapidly led to a food price crisis in 2008 with about 60 countries having food riots. And by the way, even though fuel prices came down, food prices did not subsequently come down proportionally, as is always the case. We have an ongoing poverty crisis that takes the lives of 50,000 men, women, and children in the developing world on a daily basis from preventable causes. We have a climate crisis, which already, according to Kofi Annan's foundation, is taking about 400,000 lives annually. But it was only when the financial crisis joined the range of crises I've just mentioned that those with power in government and business actually acknowledged that, in fact, we are in a deep, deep crisis. Sadly, the response to that crisis 
by those with power, especially those with political power, has been largely to ignore what Albert Einstein once said, which was, if you are trying to address a big problem or challenge, do not use the same thinking, logics, and frameworks that got you into the problem in the first place. And largely, I think, European and U.S. political leaders who have been largely responsible for the crisis that is talked about now, is the financial crisis, have largely been engaged in a process of putting band-aids over the problem, hoping that it will go away. Einstein put it differently as well once when he said, if you do what you always done, you will get what you always got. And incidentally, that's also a definition of insanity, trying, doing the thing that you've always done and expecting to get a different result. So I want to just take you very quickly through what I see as the key crises that we are facing. Firstly, we have a deep democratic deficit in the majority of countries around the world. When the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, there was a talk of a peace dividend. There was a talk of an explosion of democracy. But in reality, what the world got in the last 20 plus years is we've got the form of democracy without the substance of democracy. Largely, we got more places where we have elections, which is a good thing, but the quality of those elections, who controls those elections, and so on, uh, is in question. As a human rights activist, and who in my previous job lived for a couple of years in the United States, I used to often say to American audiences that the United States is the best democracy that money can buy. <laughs> and I have to say, now in my role at Greenpeace, I began to look more closely at exactly the content of that money, the breakdown of that money. And in fact, now I would say very clearly that the US democracy is the best democracy fossil fuel money can buy. If you think about President Bush, his entire election was bought lock, stock, and barrel by the oil industry, and history will judge him appropriately that he served the interests of his paymasters extremely faithfully in terms of the choices that he made, in terms of war, and in, and, and in a whole range of other areas. So if you look at it, what we have in many countries around the world is actually a liberal oligarchy rather than, in fact, a substantive, meaningful democracy, where, in fact, large numbers of people are actually socially excluded. When we look then at how does national democracy interact with global challenges, we are faced with a paradox, because one of the ironical things about the moment of world history that we find ourselves in is that precisely when certain countries like my own South Africa, the successor states of the former Soviet Union, various uh, Latin American countries that were coming out of military dictatorship and so on, were securing democracy for the first time, real power was actually shifting from the national to the global levels. Some of you might remember, those of you who are older, will remember that 20 years ago, when the Earth Summit was held in Rio the first time round, a slogan emerged which said, think globally, act locally. What was behind that slogan was irrespective of the issue that you were trying to address at the local or national level, 
you needed to actually reflect on how global institutions, global discourse, and global power had an impact on what you could or could not achieve at the local or national level. Now, if you take any number of global challenges that we face, it's clear that even in Africa, for example, if you had every national government in Africa which was competent, it was anti-corrupt, it had all the technical capacities they needed, Africa could never be able to pick itself out of poverty given the form, nature, and content of global power. Let me give you a few examples. You cannot, for example, deal with strengthening your economy without actually having a fair, just, and equitable global trading system. And when we look at the global trading system, it is still completely locked into a system where those countries that historically have been economically dominant have actually largely defended the rules that actually make it very difficult for African countries to trade with Europe as well as having uh, a range of heavily state-subsidized products being dumped in Africa, making it difficult, for example, for poultry farmers in Ghana to be able to sell poultry in their own country because the European Union subsidizes every European cow to the tune of two euros a day. Incidentally, almost half the people on this planet live on less than that. And the excess state-funded, uh, state-provided uh, state trade distorting subsidies mean that the excess production that we have in Europe is then dumped in markets very, very cheap in the developing world, making it difficult for farmers to even compete in their own national context. So when we look then at the slogan, think globally, act locally, suddenly that slogan became problematic. When national power is less and less relevant, not irrelevant, but less relevant, and no wonder a feminist leader from India, Devaki Jain, who was part of a new feminist movement that emerged called DAWN, Development Alternatives for Women in a New Era, where she said, hang on a minute, if we think globally and we act locally, and if real power around trade, around environment, around climate, around even an issue like HIV-AIDS, because the pricing of life-saving pharmaceutical drugs happens through an organization called WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, even in terms of dealing with an issue like HIV-AIDS and trying to ensure that the life-saving drugs are available to people who are suffering of the pandemic, you can't actually take out the global dimension. And so Devaki then said, no, the slogan is wrong. Perhaps what is needed is to think locally in terms of what our needs are, and if real power is at the global level, then we need to act at the global level. Clearly, we don't have the luxury of choosing one, and one or the other. We have to think both globally and locally, and we have to act both globally and locally, especially at a time of different kinds of governance structures emerging. So, for example, over the last 20 years, we have seen the emergence of the European Union, the African Union, various other regional structures, which offer a new point of struggle and uh, activism. So, however, when we look at the quality, then, of the global governance institutions, we have a huge problem. 
when I talk about global governance institutions, I'm meaning the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the United Nations, and a range of other structures such as the World Trade Organization. The problem we have is those global governance institutions are suffering from four deficits. The first deficit is the democratic deficit. Right? The World Bank and the IMF is governed on a $1, one vote basis. Um, the developing countries who are most affected by these decisions have very limited power in decision-making of these structures. The United Nations itself, which is generally seen by most of civil society as being more benign than other organizations and more democratic. But in fact, if you look at the Security Council of the United Nations, uh, you, it's a very good reflection of how the governance of the globe is stuck in the geopolitics of 1945. Why do I say that? Because in 1945, it might have made sense for France and the United Kingdom to actually have a veto uh, when the permanent membership of the Security Council was determined because then France and Germany, uh, sorry, France and the UK were colonial hegemons controlling large amounts of the world's population. But today, there is no justification given the population size of the UK or France other than if you say that UK and France must be rewarded because they have weapons of mass destruction in the form of nuclear weapons. But if you use that definition, then we've got to add North Korea, possibly Iran, India, Pakistan, Israel, and so on. So, and, and, and if you look at the different institutions, we've got a problem where there isn't a sense that these institutions that make important decisions that affect the lives of people all around the world operate within any democratic framework. The second problem we have is a, a compliance deficit. And that is we basically have a range of UN summits, a range of trade summits and so on with very limited implementation of the decisions that are made. If you look at G8 summits, for example, and try and do an accounting of what activism, with all the activism that goes around these uh, various summits and what actually is decided and then what is implemented, you would be hard-pressed to actually get a 20% uh, success rate in terms of compliance. Then we have a coherence deficit because for most countries you have you know, your health minister going off to the WHO, your foreign minister going off to the UN, your finance minister going off to the World Bank and IMF, and so on. And when you think about it in terms of smaller developing countries, the resources that it takes to even be part of the system is actually debilitating and weakens the governance back at the national level. So the second problem that we have to address, and when we look at the climate challenge that we have, and how, in fact, the climate negotiations are not delivering on the basis of which the science says we need to uh, uh, deliver. So if you take Co the Copenhagen summit in 2009, after much organizing, mobilizing, and engagement, civil society went to that summit with the support of many developing and several developed countries to say, we want a fab outcome at Copenhagen. Uh, fab, not fabulous, but fair, ambitious, and binding. Um, what we got in Copenhagen was not a fair, ambitious, and binding outcome. We got a flab 
outcome, FLAB, full of loopholes and bull. <laughs> the third problem we have is social exclusion. Because if we look at who is, whose interests are being served in the way the majority of the countries in the world are actually run, we have a serious problem. That in fact, the term social exclusion is generally used in academic literature as actually we're talking about minorities of people, you know, indigenous peoples, people living with disabilities, people living with life-threatening uh, illnesses, uh, people of alternative social, uh, sexual orientation, women. But then when you add the fact that today women in men, most countries are still not fully included, young people are seriously excluded and so on. When you start adding up the numbers, actually then you ask who then feels genuinely included and you come to a very uncomfortable conclusion that in fact most people are alienated from governance structures, most people are alienated from political leadership and most people do not feel that electoral democracy delivers sufficiently in terms of what their desires, aspirations, and expectations are. The role of civil society has become, of course, increasingly more important in um, the last two decades. Interestingly, though, and it's important to reflect on the intellectual um, catalyst to actually drive the re-emergence of the whole notion of civil society. Now, during the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, there was an essay written called The Essay on the History of Civil Society. Right? Now, this was a long, long time ago. So, so, so when you think about the role of civil society, the definition of civil society and so on, we're not looking at an unbroken intellectual thread that runs through it. But the current usage of civil society was actually informed by two contradictory sources, intellectual sources. It, on the one hand, it was those countries that were coming out of communist totalitarian rule in uh, the Soviet Union and driven by people like Vaslav Havel and so on. So there was a strong anti-communist component to it. And then on the other hand, it was left-wing neo-Marxists from Latin America that were the other influence to the whole growth and dominance of the idea of civil society. But while civil society language today is used left, right, and center, in fact, today the presidents of most countries, the Secretary General of the United Nations, the President of the World Bank, cannot give a major policy speech without the term civil society rolling off their tongues at the speed of a Boeing 747, what exactly has that meant in terms of the various struggles that we need to fight at this moment. And I would say that, in fact, to a large extent, most governments appreciate the service delivery role of civil society groups. They are less tolerant and accepting of the policy and advocacy role that civil society organizations pursue in challenging the policies that actually are driving our planet closer and closer to climate and uh, uh, catastrophe as well as financial catastrophe. Um, the other dimension that we've had to deal with since the horrific uh, tensions of um, the September 11, 2001, was what should have been seen as a crime against humanity and a gross violation of human rights uh, 
was responded to with what was called the War on Terror by President Bush and strongly supported by Prime Minister Tony Blair. The War on Terror essentially, if you look back, was a war against civic space and civil liberties. And in the name of the War on Terror, we saw a range of anti-democratic, anti-human rights uh, interventions being made. And one of those that uh, sort of affected me a little bit personally was what a board member of Civicus World Alliance of, uh, for Citizen Participation called the curtailment of international civic mobility. So today, when we are saying that we need global consensus, we need people coming together globally to actually forge solutions that transcend national parochialism, we have a situation where most people from the developing world have challenges actually moving around the world. And I jokingly say often that if I were to write like an autobiography of my time working at the international level, a combination of being African and also the combination of the way I look, the title of the book will be Visas, Bloody Visas. <laughs> because it has actually become any international conference you go to, right, whether it's a World Social Forum, whether it's the Civicus Assembly, whether it's a gathering of civil society around the intergovernmental meetings such as the WTO interministerial summits, you will find Asian, African, Middle Eastern, and sometimes Latin American activists in large numbers have been denied uh, visas to travel. So when we take all of these different crises and then look at the crises that actually overwhelms all of, the, all of them is in fact the environmental crisis. The world is at, bo is at a boiling point, and this, I'm not going to spend too much of time on this pick, but these are nine planetary boundaries that we have to actually work with and realize that we do not have a plan B to actually get off the destructive path that we're on because we don't have a planet B. And I will just tell you, we're talking about chemical pollution, not yet fully quantified, climate change, as you can see, the red there suggesting that we've hit a critical uh, moment already, ocean acidification, which, according to the Newsweek magazine four months ago, suggested that if we do not seriously address the, the triple whammy that our, our oceans are facing, which is overfishing, mainly in places like the Pacific or Africa, to supply the need, mainly in the developed world, um, and we add to overfishing, dumping of toxics, including oil spills, and then the third problem is ocean acidification, which is the excess carbon, which is no longer being able to be captured by forests, is ending up in our oceans, uh, creating, turning our ocean to acids, to put it quite bluntly. These three problems could mean, according to Newsweek, that in four decades our oceans would largely be dead. And bear in mind that one billion people on our planet re rely on oceans to actually uh, secure their protein. Um, and then, of course, uh, the nitrogen cycle, uh, global freshwater use, uh, land system change, and so on. And what the image you get is, in fact, of a world fast reaching a tipping point. On climate change specifically, the science is pretty clear. The science is telling us 
that we have, has been telling us for some time, we have to get emissions to peak by 2015 and start coming down. And no sensible person right now, based on the performance of our governments, would actually suggest that, in fact, uh, we are anywhere close to actually making that uh, a reality. Sadly, in Copenhagen, one of the things people were saying is, you can't change the science, you've got to change the politics, and if necessary, we have to change the politicians if they are not willing to change. Um, and the reality is, the political will and the level of urgency shown by both political and business leadership, with exceptions, of course, uh, is nowhere near averting a catastrophe that has not, is not going to happen, but is already starting to happen. Uh, so let me just say a few things, but I will start this next sentence, which Robin might be terribly shocked by. I strongly support the CIA and the Pentagon when in 2003 they said in a report to President Bush that the biggest future threat to security stability um, will not come from traditional security threats or even from terrorism, but will come as a result of the impacts of climate change. Now, many of you know about the genocide in Darfur, and the media has reported that as a primarily an identity conflict, an ethnic conflict. But when you look closer at it, as stated recently by the current UN Secretary General, that is your first big resource war being fought as a result of climate impacts. Lake Chad, one of the largest inland seas in the world, has shrunk to the size of a pond, quote unquote, current UN Secretary General, and the Sahel Desert that runs from uh, Senegal to Sudan is marching southwards at the rate of close to one mile a year. So land scarcity and water scarcity is the biggest driver there. And we can go country by country, and we will see right now climate impacts happening. Now, I know many of you were very happy last year in October. Anybody remembers last year, October? When the weather was fantastic in the UK but, and, and in Europe. But that actually is the kind of warning sign that our whole system is actually uh, falling apart. Biodiversity loss has been, is again reaching um, very threatening levels. As we sit in this room here today, every two seconds, a forest the size of a football field will disappear. Now, whereas in the past, when people stood up and spoke about forests, people would say, ah, these are tree huggers and bunny huggers and they like animals in the forest and so on. But today humanity understands that forests are the lungs of the planet and that our inability to protect this most powerful natural asset is suicidal and actually has to be reversed. The problem we have, though, is a psychological one when we look at our political and business leaders. And it's a problem that I would call, I mean, others have called, cognitive dissonance. A condition of conflict or anxiety resulting from inconsistency between one's beliefs and one's actions. 
Put differently, and, and I have a nice example of a cognitive dissonance situation. Some of you might remember when the American troops were finally in Baghdad after the invasion. Uh, Saddam Hussein's communications minister was still there, and he was doing a press conference, and journalists were asking him, so how long are you going to withhold American firepower, and how long do you think this uh, war will last, and so on. And the minister said, what war? And behind him, buildings were burning, bombs were dropping, and so on. I want to be quite blunt that the quality of political leadership and business leadership we have right now is nowhere near where the world needs them to be. But here's the difficulty for activism. When you actually engage with Angela Merkel or with President Obama or with the Indonesian president or any other political leaders in one-to-one -one conversations, when we put the science on the table, there is no disagreement. They agree. They are concerned. But then when they walk out of those engagements, they fall into a business-as-usual approach. And that is the challenge we have now of how we change it. So I was a bit nervous about uh, not uh, sounding intellectual enough, so I thought I would... Uh, think about a few people that uh, influenced my intellectual development and I thought I'd dig up Louis Althusser and let me ask you, how many of you know Louis Althusser? Okay. Now, uh, by the way, ISAs is not an investment vehicle because I understand that's what it stands for in the UK context. But I believe Althusser made one of the most important intellectual contributions of the late 70s and early 80s when he made a distinction between what he called the ideological state apparatus and RSAs. By the way, RSAs is a bit funny because it's also, for me, it's also the Republic of South Africa. Uh, repressive state apparatus. It was an extremely important distinction which says a lot about the context of activism. Because quite often when we think about our government's control, we actually think about the repressive state apparatus. We think about the army, the police, formal laws, and so on. But actually, the more insidious and the more powerful control, I would argue, is the ideological state apparatus. That is the media environment, the uh, schooling system, the framework for religion, uh, various social and cultural norms, and so on, have as much a role of manipulating and controlling dissent and can be, like the United States, for example, does not need repressive state apparatus, because the ideological state apparatus is so strong. Let me give you one example. How many of you in this room have watched, at some point in your life, CNN International? Okay, keep your hands up. Okay, now the same people who got their hands up. Keep, keep it up, keep it up. <laughs> How many of you think that CNN International is a left-wing, or a left-of-center, or a liberal news source? Please keep your hands up. Really? Now, here's the thing. The American people do not see CNN International. They see a right-wing version of CNN International called CNN Headline News, first point. Second point is, when you put it in the political continuum of the television channels in the U.S., CNN, the right-wing version of what none of you thought was left-wing enough, is seen as extreme left together with MSNBC, and you see, in fact, 
you know, Fox, of course, uh, on the far right. So it's important then that when we think about our strategies of activism, that this has to be taken fundamentally into account about where we put our energies and, and, how in, and understanding how difficult it is to change. Structures, systems, and institutions. So this brings me then to my concluding point on the power of civil disobedience. History teaches us that whenever humanity has faced a major global challenge or injustice, whether it was slavery, whether it was uh, civil rights in the United States, apartheid, a woman's right to vote, and many other struggles, all of these struggles only moved forward when decent men and women said, enough is enough and no more. We're prepared to put our lives on the line. We're prepared to go to prison if necessary. And I believe that we are witnessing, I pose this as a question, are we witnessing a turning point on civil disobedience? If we take civil disobedience definition to be the active professed refusal to obey certain laws, demands, and commands of government. When we look at what happened with the Arab revolutions, what has been happening with the indignados, the Occupy movement, and so on, we are seeing the emergence of a new kind of activism that is both organized, driven by social media, as well as having a loose form of organizing. Now, there's a book that's just come out in the United States, well, two years ago now, called Spider and the Starfish. And the subtitle is The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. Now, why Spider and the Starfish? A spider is hierarchically structured. You chop its head and it will die. A starfish, if you chop off one of those thingamajigs, <laughs> they uh, grow into another starfish and and it grows back where you chopped it. When you take that analogy and apply it to organizations, so your best starfish organization uh, probably is Alcoholics Anonymous. No, don't laugh. Nobody knows who's the leader, where its headquarters is, and so on, but every place in the world you go, you can find people following the same 12-step program. Right? So the whole notion of organizations that are, and of course, Al-Qaeda, would probably be seen as also a starfish organization. So one of the things that activism is challenged about now is how do we actually find the right balance between informal organizing and informal, non-permanent types of activism on the one hand, but also recognizing the value of more structured uh, forms of activism that uh, an organization like Greenpeace or uh, Friends of the Earth and other groups might actually uh, be engaged in. So I'm going to conclude very quickly with just giving you a sense of one campaign that where some of these issues have come up for Greenpeace, and since Robin also mentioned it in his introduction. So why is an African right, concerned about the Arctic? Uh, and as Robin correctly pointed out, it was pretty cold there not just for me, but even the folks that came from Finland and so on were also freezing. Well, in some of you, any of you from the United States here? So the folks from the United States might know you've got a proverb that says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. 
Sadly, what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic, right? Because we've got two problems. One is the Arctic serves as a refrigerator and an air conditioner and a regulator of our global climate. And the fact that the Arctic sea ice has reached this year the lowest ever level in human history means that we are eroding our air conditioner or our refrigerator of the planet. And then Arctic sea ice melting in off the Greenland uh, uh, with the land-based glaciers means that it's also been contributing and will continue to contribute to sea level rise. Right? So Greenpeace launched this campaign with the hope that by the end of this year we will have a million people mobilized. And I'm happy to say that we've managed to actually do this in a very more spider-like way rather than a more uh, sorry, in a more starfish-like way rather than a more spider-like way. And it has engaged a lot of people around the world. Now, the difficulty with the Arctic is it's not in people's imagination. In fact, a young person told me, uh, the, young, uh, the young person is in the audience, so I won't embarrass the person, said, a better slogan than save the Arctic would be save Santa Claus now. <laughs> because that's the only association that most people have with that part of the world. So the difficulty for Greenpeace in this campaign to protect and defend a part of the planet if we do not do it will lead us faster and faster and closer and closer to catastrophic climate change. It's been a challenge because of the remoteness of the place and the fact that it's not in people's general imagination. So one piece of the struggle is to continue to deal with the political process. Imperfect as it is, one of the things we are working now with various governments, especially small island states in least developed countries, is to get a, the upper Arctic declared as a global sanctuary, just as 20 years ago plus we got the Antarctic to be declared as a global common good. Now, now that work requires working with governments, engaging with governments, very conventional type of activism. The second piece is uh, this is not particularly new for most organizations, but what we have found is engaging celebrities as actually raised the volume of public focus. Uh, and this, I must say, I'm not speaking specifically to these celebrities who have stepped forward to support. By the way, I don't know most of them. <laughs> I know Paul McCartney <laughs> and that other old guy. <laughs> uh, but the difficulty we have is that there was a term that emerged during the Make Poverty History campaign where celebrities were very actively involved. Some of you might remember it, called celebrocracy, which is the domination of public space by celebrities. So one of the challenges, even in working with celebrities, is looking at how, in fact, you can use their profile to amplify a message, but on the other hand, uh, maintain the core values of the movements that are driving them. The other thing we have to do is engage with unusual suspects. And when we launched the Arctic campaign, you'll be surprised to see who these people are. So the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts, who were with us uh, in the Arctic recently, are the partner organization mobilizing global uh, young people to participate to help draft a global sort of flag for the upper Arctic so that the impending 
new Cold War between Russia, U.S., Canada, uh, Norway, and other so-called Arctic nations can be averted. Uh, Richard Branson, who probably doesn't agree with everything that Greenpeace stands for, uh, stood with us in Rio and said, it's absolute madness uh, drilling in the Arctic. Now, for us as Greenpeace, you might think, wow, you're taking a risk with somebody who owns an airline, right, which is not the most environmentally you know, friendly uh, uh, industry. But the challenge, I think, if we do a power analysis of the balance of forces that are against us, we have to get better at focusing generally on the larger number of things that actually unite civil society and be willing then on that basis draw people who can amplify your struggle in a way that actually enhances your ability to actually win. The third person is uh, Jochen Seitz, who's the CEO of Puma. And he issued such a strong statement from Rio Plus 20 that a, the Guardian newspaper, in support of the campaign, the Guardian newspaper actually said, uh, ran articles uh, with a heading, who will not be on Shell's in Christmas invitation list uh, this year. Right? Now the thing is, if John Sauvin, who's sitting at the back there, the head of Greenpeace UK, and me get arrested, say these things and so on, Generally, people say, of course they'll say that. But the challenge is getting new voices, including religious leaders, to actually step up and participate is critically important. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to rush through these last slides now. I'll just give you a flavor of some of the things that we've been experimenting with. So our head of the Dutch Shell, uh, sorry, not Dutch Shell, head of the Dutch Greenpeace, <laughs> with 50 activists went and occupied the headquarters of Shell in um, The Hague and occupied the CEO's office. It was 7 in the morning. He hadn't woken up yet. And from his office, broadcasted to the world saying, I've taken over as CEO of Shell and my first move as the new CEO of Shell is simple and effective. No drilling for oil in the pristine Arctic and big investments in renewable energy. That was in July. Uh, then in July, we hit 1 million names. One million supporters signed up specifically for the campaign, which was our target for the end of this year. And once that happened, what we saw was a response by Shell to actually tie us up in court cases, and I'll come to that in a second. And Robin referred to this at, uh, action we took in the Russian Arctic, and I'm happy to say that it succeeded in halting drilling. So right now, there's no drilling happening in the Arctic, but it's just a reprieve in the Arctic Ocean. It's just a reprieve because it will be back when the ice melts again uh, next summer. Uh, and interestingly, the, the CEO of Shell, oh, sorry, of, of uh, Total, went on record as saying oil on Greenland would be a disaster, a leak would be too much damage to the image of the company. Shell has taken us to court uh, through what are called SLAP suits, S-L-A-P-P, and that stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. So when Shell takes us and sues us for 100,000, 700,000 and so on, that's like not even small change for Shell. Why they do it is to actually intimidate and tie you up in complex legal processes, which mean that in fact you are not 
able to continue to activate against them. But this is the ruling of the Dutch courts last week, Friday. Uh, sorry. I'll have this un environmentally unfriendly water in the plastic bottle. <laughs> the, the court said a company like Shell that is taking actions or plans to take actions that are controversial in society and which many people will object to can and should expect that actions will be taken to try to change its mind. And we've hit two million, and what next? Let me conclude with this. Firstly, for every environmental and social crime that's committed, there is some financial institution or some bank that is actually providing a loan or investment to a company, whether it's Nestle, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Shell, is providing investment. So one of the things, if you are going to get accelerated movement right now, is to start thinking about what pressure we put on financial institutions, telling them you should not be lending to socially and environmentally uh, damaging uh, enterprises. I believe it gives us, to use an American expression, more bang for our buck in terms of impact and activism. The second thing is we've got to get better at building broad-based alliances. And we have to break out of the comfort zone of thinking that environmental organizations can win the environmental struggle on their own or that... Uh, women's organizations can win gender equity on their own, or that development organizations can beat poverty on, the, on their own. We have to be understanding better what the women's movement challenged us to several decades ago when they said we need to engage in intersectionality, meaning that if you're going to advance gender equality, you needed to understand how gender intersects with race, class, ability, religion, and so on. And we have to get better at joining up the different struggles that we face. I do not think we can win if we do not have a new sense of international solidarity and we have to begin to recognize that the out-of-balance world that we're in is unjust, it's unsustainable, and will drive us to conflict and disaster and catastrophic climate change faster than we know it. The last thing I want to conclude is in answering the question, is civil disobedience changing? And I would say, yes, it is, but actually, history and what has been done in the past to win struggles against injustice is a very powerful teacher. And intensifying civil disobedience right now is a critical moral imperative, recognizing that dissent is, in fact, the highest level of patriotism, as Albert Einstein once said. So, in conclusion... While time is fast running out for us to address the multiple crises that we face, we have to get better at bridging the divides and addressing even some of the most difficult tensions that we've had in the past, such as the tension between the labor movement and the environmental movement. Uh, people talked in the past about the red-green tensions. We are now talking about a red-green alliance. The head of, and I'll end with their words, the head of the international trade union movement, an Australian like Robin, Sharon Burrows, put it extremely well during Rio Plus 20 when we met with the Secretary General of the UN, where she said, 
Secretary General, you'll be surprised to hear that we as a union movement are just as committed to address the issue of climate change, even though our primary focus is to work for decent jobs on this planet, because, she said, there are no decent jobs on a dead planet. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kumi. That was a wonderful talk. Um, just before we start taking questions, could I ask someone to try and put the lights on at the back? Because I think it would be helpful if the speaker could see all the people who are asking questions and also perhaps up at the top. Um, so we've got about uh, 25 minutes for questions. So um, can I just uh, take... I'll start taking a few from different parts of the audience. So starting with this gentleman with the glasses in the middle. Would you cluster three questions? I think yeah, I'd love to do. And instigating consumer boycotts. How do you plan to mobilize the millions of potential green activists throughout the world? And would it be possible for Greenpeace to combine with other campaigns like Friends of the Earth or 350? so that potential supporters would be really motivated to feel that we had, the Green Movement had, a really strong and united strategy. Why don't you take that one and I'll okay. turn it yeah. um, So, thank you for the question. At the moment, Greenpeace is working extremely closely with um, the organizations you mentioned, but many more, Friends of the Earth, 350.org, uh, as well as the International Trade Union Conference, the World Council of Churches, and so on. We are totally committed to working in alliance and partnership with organizations that, through that partnership, can give us greater impact. Uh, in terms of the specific things we're doing around um, the various targets that we have, if you want, generally, you know, some people don't kiss and tell, we don't upfront say exactly what the detail is, but essentially it would be trying to look at, for example, maximizing the pension fund power that we all have as citizens because a lot of our pension funds are actually invested in things that we actually would find pretty objectionable. Now, I realize some of you here like me, might not have a proper pension, but, but in fact, a lot of people who are in formal employment do. Uh, the last thing I would say is that there are conversations going on with the organization you mentioned. I'll just give you one example of a campaign that is happening right now. It will start on the day of the U.S. elections, drawing on the inspiration of the divestment movement that happened, you know, to support the liberation struggle in South Africa on campuses around the U.S. 350.org is taking the leadership and Greenpeace is supporting them in terms of mobilizing on every campus uh, in the United States to say that 
for students to say they do not want their universities to actually invest in oil, coal and gas and other environmentally and socially destructive uh, industries. So I give you that as an example, but there's several others that we are looking at as well. Okay. Um, I think there's quite a lot of questions, so I'm going to take um, two or three at a time. First, the woman in red there, and then after that, um, there was a gentleman over here. Yes, this gentleman with the glasses, and then lastly, you. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned about how it's hard to campaign about the Arctic because many people are not related to it. So like, how do you manage to choose... Um, well, how do you manage to kind of pub publicize your uh, Greenpeace campaign when, you know, in some certain countries, for example, I'm from Indonesia, and there are a lot more other things that's more important, it seems, for Indonesians other than the Arctics. Yeah, thanks. Okay, and then this gentleman over here. Uh, we've seen some attempts at coalitions uh, alliances already. Um, not necessarily international ones, and they haven't been entirely successful. Why do you think that's been, and what how do you think we can do to overcome that? Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, you, you drew our attention to the fact that um, large regions of the world were lacking uh, substantial democracy, and um, you also mentioned um, the the broad disillusion that came a few years after the fall of um, the Berlin Wall. Um, would you uh, qualify uh, the eastern countries of the European continent as lacking um, substantial democracy also? And uh, couldn't you agree that there have been some improvements uh, during the last 20 years? Thank you. Okay, just on starting with the last question. Uh, definitely there's been positive developments in terms of democracy, civil liberties, and so on in several Eastern and Central European countries. I do think, though, if you go and interrogate more closely, it was those that actually con were influential in the old system that actually have re-designed uh, themselves and are still quite influential in the new system. Uh, they might use different names for parties and so on, but in fact are largely uh, people who have sort of uh, reinvented themselves. But having said that, of course, there is uh, many positive things uh, that have happened. In fact, some of the best innovations in non-profit law, for example, uh, we've seen in places like Hungary, uh, where they have a law, for example, called the 1% law, where as an individual taxpayer, you can instruct the government to give 1% of your tax to a non-profit of your choice and 1% to a faith-based organization of your choice. I see somebody from Hungary nodding very enthusiastically in agreement. Uh, so, but that, but, but I, I think we have to be blunt, though, that what is the standard that we should set for democracy? I mean, for democracy to be meaningful, it has to deliver on the core needs of the majority of the people in the world. And what we see is, in fact, a privatization of profits when there are profits to be made and a socialization of losses when there are losses to be made. Right? I mean, the reality is that private institutions share liberally huge 
obscene levels of profit. And then when you see the banking crisis, for example, it is the people who have to actually come forward through the government's decisions to actually bail the banks out. On the challenge of coalitions and alliances, I think I, I, I meant to say in my comments, alliances and coalitions are much easier said than done. And having been part of building several coalitions and alliances, I can tell you that there are a couple of principles that we have to bear in mind. We have to firstly be willing to leave our logos at the door, right? because quite often what happens is people join an alliance and coalition and they expect every issue that they fight on to be actually reflected in the coalition. If that was the case, you wouldn't need the coalition. I mean, you go into a coalition to actually find a common agenda. The challenge is to ensure that the common agenda is not a lowest common denominator. You have to be able to ensure that there is guts, courage, and vision, but construct it in a way where, in fact, people might still be part of it enthusiastically, but actually have tactical policy differences. An example within the Global Call to Action Against Poverty, which was the global part of the Make Poverty History campaign, as chair, I had to deal with the challenge between the religious organizations uh, saying that they didn't want any reference to reproductive rights and a woman's right to choose. And of course, feminist organizations saying, we want to have explicit uh, statement of a woman's right to choose. So what we did, there was a big meeting in Beirut uh, where this was happening. And we sent the feminists and the religious people into the room and we said, don't come out until you'll have an agreement that, that we can agree with. And so they, followed, they discussed it for about an hour and came back and said, okay, we've all agreed that in fact we can say we support the global call to action against poverty supports reproductive health. Right? Now, that was much less than the feminists wanted. It was much more than the religious organizations wanted to see in the outcome. But you created a frame that, in fact, people still didn't feel the need to work. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is just resourcing and energizing coalitions and so on. And I do think, from my own experience, that the best coalitions are the ones that are actually driven and run by the constituent parts of the coalition. One of the things that happens often is when a coalition sets up its own secretariat and its own infrastructure, then everybody says, okay, we don't have to contribute so much now. Those people are employed to do it, so let them do it. So those are just some kind of reflections, but I, I don't think we have a choice but to get better at it because those of power are not going to be shifted unless we provide a more united and stronger pressure on them. Uh, on how do you publicize the campaign, like the Arctic. I mean, you know, you've got to use today the new sources of uh, media that are available. I mean, social media has actually revolutionized uh, activist space. And I've been in Indonesia recently to meet with your president uh, around challenges that we're having. The Rainbow Warrior, our ship that was bombed 26 years, 27 years ago by the uh, French intelligence, uh, well, not that ship, but the second version of it was trying to enter Indonesia and we were denied entry. John Sauvin got a visa from the Indonesian government in 
London, flew all the way there and got deported together with another colleague. And so, but what I found is that people are concerned about the various interconnecting challenges that we have. So the, you know, the, the rainforest in Indonesia is a critical part of the global solution to climate change. And so while people in Indonesia might be primarily focused on the Sumatran rainforest, and that's fine, and less maybe actively involved in, you know, around the Arctic. But by the way, there are lots of Indonesians that have signed up for the campaign because of the, the use of social media and creative options of engagement and involvement. Um, and I just want to say quickly about the social media thing because I, I am not somebody who thinks that social media is a panacea for activism, that in fact uh, we can put all our eggs in a social media basket. Uh, but social media used strategically and tactically can really be powerful as a source of activism. I mean, in the Arab countries, you know, people used to say that people use Facebook to organize the event, Twitter to inform people when it was happening, and YouTube to report to the world what happened. Uh, in, in fact, some of us who passed the social media generation, you know, old people like Robin and myself. In fact, there was, a, there was a leader of a very prominent British charity was trying to encourage his staff some years ago to get involved in social, social media and he said, yeah, you guys, he was trying to tell them I was getting involved in my, MySpace. You remember MySpace? <laughs> MySpace and Facebook and he ended up saying, yeah, you folks need to use Facebook and MyFace. <laughs> uh, so, so, so I do think there's a little bit of a generational kind of divide. Uh, but then uh, Malcolm Gladwell, some of you might have known, uh, those of you who study social media will know that he said, you know, clicktivism, which is online activism, can also be described as slacktivism. You know, you're just sitting in your chair pressing buttons. But bear in mind, if you're an activist engaged in social media in Syria or during what was happening in Egypt and so on. Nobody could accuse you of slacktivism. So I, I do think that we need to use new, use the new technologies. But the main thing also is how do we connect the different environmental struggles because they're all fundamentally connected and how do we communicate in ways that are accessible that people can actually get engaged. Okay, some more questions. Um, so can we start with the woman with the mauve shirt on? And then I'm going to take a couple up the top. Um, this, this woman with the glasses second and the woman at the back last. Yeah, um, hi, Dr. Nayaru. It's good to meet you. Uh, my name is Nicola and I'm doing my Master's in Environmental Politics. Um, I just want to ask you a question um, about an article I read in The Guardian the other day. Um, it was about the British government and British oil companies trying to get scientists to de-risk the Arctic for oil drilling. Um, and I just wanted to know what would be your campaign's future incentive on dealing with that attitude, um, basically what, you, what you're going to be doing in the future to deal with that. Okay, and the woman in green at the front on the upper balcony and the glasses? Um, thank you. Um, you talk about the importance of uh, forming alliances and, and coalitions. I guess that's partly because, or maybe very importantly because of uh, the relatively weakness of the uh, civil society organizations um, as opposed to the state power. 
So I wonder whether uh, um, it's possible that to some, um, perhaps at some point in the future, when the civil society organizations grow strong enough and that they don't feel that necessary to form alliances, and then by that time, the conflicts of um, their different agendas might, they might want to compete each other. And by that time, how do you reconcile all those competing agendas? Do you think that it would be necessary to have any form, any sort of formal um, organization, the global governance, so to say, to um, coordinate all these um, very important uh, civil society organizations? Okay, and lastly, the woman at the back. Uh, thank you, Kumi. Uh, my name's Louise. I'm, uh, I work for Polly Higgins at Eradicating Ecocide. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're proposing that an international law of ecocide be implemented to stop extensive damage to the environment. Um, I wondered if you could talk about what you feel are the most promising solutions to our environmental problems at the moment and where you see the most promising leadership coming from, uh, be that business or government or civil society or whatever. And I also wanted to take the opportunity to invite you to be part of Climate Block, uh, marching for climate justice tomorrow as part of the trade unions marches in London. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Nicola, the UK members of parliament had a process of reviewing the threats of Arctic drilling, and they pretty unanimously issued a report recently, a month ago, saying that drilling for oil in the Arctic was too risky, too dangerous, and so on. What you read, and I didn't see the article that you referred to a few days ago, would sound to me, I'm just making a guess here, that it's a fight back from the oil industry against the parliamentary assessment to actually try and present a different uh, perspective. And all, I, without going into any detail about what exactly we will do, but I, I, I will just assure you that everything within our power we will do to actually expose the lie of this, as well as to organize serious public opposition to it, notwithstanding the consequences. Um, then the question on how to reconcile differences, my short answer is with considerable difficulty. Right? But just because it's difficult, I don't think we should shy away from it. And I think it's also important that we don't put a pressure on civil society that we don't put on governments or businesses. We never say to businesses and governments, you folks need to get your act together and get organized and come with one single position. I'm not saying that you were suggesting that, but sometimes there is a little bit of a double standard about the chaos in governance and in business, in governments and business, which is multiple sort of different strands of thinking, etc., and they can get away with absolute chaos. And they suddenly they say, oh, well, civil society, you folks must get your act together and you must come with one single position, etc., etc. I do think that we need to get our act together. I think we need to be more coordinated. I don't think we should actually be settling for a single position, right? Because we live in a diverse world. People have different opinions we should actually respect and celebrate that to a certain extent. And therefore, I don't think trying to homogenize civil society is actually a goal. I think what, it, what the goal should be is how do we harness the full potential of a diversity of organizations around, a com around commonly agreed agendas that can give you more impact. 
Louise, on um, Ecoside and the work that you're doing. Firstly, I applaud that work, and Polly came to Greenpeace in Amsterdam and did a very wonderful presentation. I think on promising solutions in leadership, I think there are some leading people in the business community, there are leading people in civil society, and there are some governments. Sadly, the governments that are most sort of pushing hardest for a climate treaty that is fair, ambitious, and binding are mainly those governments that are actually most vulnerable and where they can see, for example, in Maldives, that sea level rise over time could wipe out the entire country and so on, is where we're seeing you know, kind of more active, thoughtful leadership. But I'm being blunt about it, that quite often it is from direct, uh, imme the immediacy of the challenge is much greater for those countries. Overall, though, I have to say that if you take what the science is saying, what we are generally know we need to do, and what solutions are on the table, it's pretty limited. You know, there's a big gap between where we need to be. And, but I do think and that one of the things in terms of solutions that Greenpeace has been pushing is what we call the energy revolution scenario, where we've designed together with business think tanks and so on, a scenario where through, to put it simply, through serious investment in renewable energy, as well as serious investment in energy efficiency initiatives that we could, by 2050, wean ourselves off fossil fuels uh, in many countries up to 85%. But it has to be matched with serious investments in uh, renewable energy. And let me just conclude by saying that the uh, people that I've been very amazed by as actually been uh, leaders of the trade union movement globally, right? where in fact they are talking now about a just transition to a green economy, they are engaged on, 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 on the issue like you would never uh, imagine you know, 10 years ago, and I think that the, I conclude with a challenge to one part of civil society that is not as engaged as they need to be, and that is religious leaders. Uh, I think every religious text you pick up, you'll find some environmental wisdom in that religious text. And recently, just to conclude on a light note, I was in uh, uh, Rome and near the Pope, and uh, <laughs> and I was doing an interview on television, like the what's that Friday show you have here, Jonathan, Jonathan, something like that in Italy, and. Uh, and I said, you know, it'd be great if the Pope and all the other religious leaders whose silence on environmental justice and climate justice has largely been deafening. There have been, of course, a few outstanding uh, voices. But they should come before the world's public and say, folks, do you think God was so cruel? Because if you buy into religion, I know not all of you do, but then, uh, you know, God presumably knew that humanity would need energy to survive. So I said, you know, the Pope and all should come and say, do you think God scratched these? And he said, ah, these buggers are going to need energy, so I know what I'll do. I'll take the coal, I'll put it deep in the ground, take the oil and gas, put it deep in the ocean and deep in the ground, so people have to kill themselves trying to get to it. Uh, so clearly humanity has been looking in the wrong direction. Rather than looking down, uh, we should look up and see that, in fact, wind and solar were given. Now, I know somebody's going to tell me geothermal comes from the bottom. Uh, so primarily we should be looking up than, than down. Thank you.
Okay, well, I think we've just got time for another round of questions, but if I could ask you to keep the questions brief and, and the answers perhaps as well. Can I just uh, get some idea of who, who would like to... Um, so I've got one person up there, this woman, then I've got this gentleman here and that gentleman up the back. We do Hi. need to keep it a little bit brief. Because It'll be brief. So I just wanted to know what you say to people who question what the point of us doing anything green or environmental is when there's so many developing nations and countries like China and India with huge populations that might not do the same thing? Thank you. That was admirably succinct. Um, <laughs> where's yeah. our next yeah. person? Yeah. Hi. Um, I'd like to hear more of your thoughts on uh, young people and the political process or formal political process. Um, I mean, you've talked a bit today about you know, disenfranchisement and alienation that you know, many young people um, experience from formal political parties, but what would you say are the best arguments for joining political parties? And would you persuade you know, young people to do so, continue doing so, or, you know, because they're not doing so uh, nowadays and membership rates are falling? And lastly, this man at the back. Uh, hello, my name's Ludwig. I'm a student here and I'm also a trained South African field guide. And I just want to ask you a question that's very close to my heart um, about biodiversity and mainly about the slaughter of white rhinos and elephants uh, in South Africa. Uh, you don't have to answer about that, but uh, I was wondering, how do we stop the mass destruction of biodiversity? Is it in the countries where the, the trade is going to? For example, in these cases, it's towards Asia. Or is it from mass like, organizations such as yourself? Or is it from world governments uh, such as the US, such as uh, Britain? Um, that's my question. Okay, Ludwig, all of the above is the answer. Uh, We've got to do all of those. Uh, in fact, right now, there's people in South Africa who are saying that what we should be doing is pike the rhino horn with poison so that people who buy it will die. And once that happens, then nobody will want uh, the rhino horn, which, you know, stupidly it's been promoted as a sort of aphrodisiac in Asia by some myth that has been created, which is a very serious problem with actually the destruction of uh, rhino and other animals with uh, tusks. Uh, young people and political parties. I don't know whether I would encourage young people to join political parties, actually. <laughs> uh, I would not necessarily discourage them either, but I, I, I think that young people have to be looking at the vehicles of organizing where they think they will be treated with respect, where their voices will be actually uh, valued, and that they would not be seen as leaflet pushers or you know, poster uh, erectors. You know? uh, and I think the one message I would say to young people, right, you've got to resist the idea, because uh, the idea that you are the leaders of tomorrow, because many adults very gen you know, generally say, oh, young people are the leaders of tomorrow, and generally older leaders, even progressive leaders, see young people as half empty rather than half full. You know, they focus on what young people don't have rather than the huge potential that young people have. If we look at the historic events in the Arab world, even in my own experience in South Africa, the indignados occupy all of these things. These were movements that were led by young people. They were the ones who were prepared to put their lives on the line and were prepared to actually take a stand. So my main message to young people everywhere I go these days is resist that you are the leader of tomorrow and assert that you are the leaders of today because, quite frankly, 
if you put your faith in the current generation of adult leaders, you will be backing the biggest bunch of losers you'll ever find anywhere in history. Uh, then, on the question of uh, what, what is worth, uh, why is it worth doing things in, in the UK or Europe and so on, you see, historically, if we look at it, the developed parts of the world carry the biggest burden in terms of environmental destruction generally, and particularly with regard to burning of fossil fuels and, and carbon emissions. So in our work at Greenpeace, for example, we, our priorities now are India, China, Brazil, South Africa, other parts of Africa, in, uh, and, and so on. And, um, but I can tell you, I'll just quickly end with a small anecdote from a meeting the Vice Minister of China and those of you who studied uh, communist systems will know that the vice minister for planning in communist systems, the planning guys are the dudes with the biggest attitudes and the biggest power, right? So this guy is also the, one of the authors of the current five-year plan that has just started, and he's also the chief climate negotiator. And we had a two-hour meeting with him in May of 2010, and I stepped out of that meeting, and my colleagues from China said, so what did you take away from that meeting? And I said, well, that the Chinese government is really concerned about current climate impacts they are facing in southwest, uh, drought in southwest China and flooding in several provinces. And that one of the things that we're very clear about, we are ready to move, but we cannot, we would be stupid to move if those countries carry the biggest resp historical responsibility, continue to be suggesting that they're going to increase, in fact, their investments in oil, coal, and gas, and other fossil, uh, in, in fossil fuels. So essentially, they were saying to us, we will move when those that carry the biggest historical burden are prepared to, uh, to move. But uh, just to conclude on an optimistic note, uh, Martin Luther King, I have a dream, and all of that stuff, <laughs> is that I believe passionately that we can turn the crisis of climate change into an opportunity for two reasons primarily. One is, we either get this right as rich and poor, developed and developing, Western and Eastern, whatever divisions we see in the world, we either get this right as a united global family and we secure the future of all our children and grandchildren. If we get it wrong, yes, it's true, developing countries that have been le least responsible for the climate crisis will, as they are already, pay the first and most brutal price for impacts, but ultimately nobody is protected on this planet, right? It's only a matter of time before folks in Europe and um, North America and so on. So that's one thing, that this should be a moment of realization where we break down the dichotomies that have kept the world apart. The second optimistic thing, the solutions of getting out of the crisis is not simply an environmental solution. If our governments get serious, in investing in renewable technologies. Report after report has shown that, in fact, the job creation potential in renewable energy sector investment is significantly more than clinging on to dirty, unsafe uh, uh, energy. In fact, not only is the energy dirty and unsafe, those jobs are also dangerous, unsafe, affects communities, and so on. So, and, and thirdly, I would say the third positive thing addressing our 
moving from our addiction to oil, coal, and gas, also has another really positive benefit, which is why in the United States, even though at the national level we are stuck, we are shutting down coal plant after coal plant after coal plant, is because people who live in those communities are coming at it a little bit because of global warming, but primarily because of health, air quality, and water quality. So, so we need to uh, see that taking on this challenge is also about enhancing such things as air quality, water quality, and health, which is critical for survival. So it, the solutions doesn't have to be painful. I don't think we can get out of our addiction overnight, but we should be saying now, no fresh future investments in oil, coal, and gas, and, other, and fossil fuels generally, and and we need to be thinking how we transition and future investments should be going to clean, abundant, renewable energy potential that we have that can meet our energy needs but doesn't have to harm the planet and harm our children and future generations' futures in the process. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Kumi, for a wonderful lecture and a wonderful effort to launch our series this year. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that you not only gave us an analysis of the current situation that we're in, but also offered a program, a program of, based on optimism but tempered by realism uh, for what we might do. And, and lastly, and I think especially relevant to us here at the LSE, I think we should listen to your call for a renewed, integrated activist and intellectual culture, the sort of culture which helped to form you and many other important activists and intellectual leaders today. So thank you again very much for coming, and I look forward to seeing all of you in future lectures. <laughs>